Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by the very versatile and talented Joanne Grady Husky, who has many interesting and harrowing experiences accompanying her Foreign Service husband, Jim, to posts abroad. Welcome, Joanne, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bonnie. So let's start with your childhood. You were born and raised in Livingston, New Jersey. What was life like for you growing up in the 1950s and 1960s? Your father had a job buying chocolate for M&Ms. That must have been so cool for you as a child. I'm part of a huge Catholic family. I'm the oldest of five kids, all of whom were born within seven years. We had a team for everything. My dad was really the organizer of all the games. We played all sorts of games that our family organized for the whole neighborhood. I had a wonderful life growing up. In 1970, you transferred to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. How was campus life during those turbulent years? Well, 1970 was a very pivotal year for the University of Wisconsin. The summer that I transferred there, the students blew up the Army Math Research Center because of the Vietnam War protests, and it was all over the news. So my family was horrified that I was going there. But I was determined. I wanted to be part of the anti-war movement. I wanted to be in a big place with lots of good ideas. And so it was a big turning point in my life because I I left sort of a East Coast, New England family who didn't even know Wisconsin existed and said, I'm going to do this. It was a real break free moment for me. So you majored in philosophy. And then what sparked your interest in foreign cultures and international affairs? I had a boyfriend who uh, worked for Harvard Business School and went to Nicaragua. I went to see him and ended up learning Spanish and then being totally enamored with uh, Latin American culture and music and dance. I was a dancer at the time. I thought I was going for two weeks. I stayed for two years. <laughs> that started me on this quest of understanding other cultures and being involved in them. I had lived in Paris when I was younger, actually, as a right out of college. I did a year in Paris studying French. So I was always interested in different cultures and exposing myself to people of different backgrounds. One of your first jobs was with WGBH, which is a PBS affiliate that produces children's programming like Zoom and the Electric Company. And then you moved to San Francisco and you literally joined the circus. Well, that was a really big turning point again in my life. I um, was working for Zoom and we lost our funding from McDonald's and I was laid off. So I went out to California to see my friends and they were all about to jump on a truck and join a circus camp for the summer. And I said, well, hey, I know how to dance. I'm going to come. And we did a summer camp where we learned acrobatics and juggling and all of that. A woman came up to us from the Department of Labor and said, we would like to know if you will go to all the Indian reservations in the Northwest and do this circus because these Indian reservations are dying. There's no spirit. They're demoralized. We want you to bring community spirit. So we did. We took our truck for almost a whole year and went to all the Northwest Indian reservations in the United States. And we'd go for a week in each reservation, come in, set up our circus camp and get the community involved in helping us. And at the end of the week, we would have a full out circus. This was really an amazing experience and very life changing for me. 
sounds like a really fun chapter of your life. And also learning about different cultures as well, cultures within our own country. Then you got your master's in education at Harvard, and then you got interested in working with children with disabilities. And you started in Boston teaching deaf children dance and theater from 78 to 79. And then you moved to Washington, D.C. in 79 to 88, where you worked with a program called Very Special arts at the Kennedy Center. Can you tell us what you did there? Well, originally I was a dancer and I was a mime. And when I was at Harvard, I met a guy who wanted to do a mime theater. So we we toured around the country. So then I did that project in Boston. Uh, I taught dance and theater to kids who were deaf. When we ran out of money, I went to the Kennedy Center in Washington. The program was called Very Special Arts at the time. And they said, we want to hire you as a trainer and we want to send you around the country and have you work with special education teachers and people who have disabilities and integrate the arts into both the education system as well as uh, rehabilitation. And the whole goal was to make sure that people who have disabilities were integrated into society. So it was a really big job. It was really fun. I started doing dance with people who were in wheelchairs. I did a lot of deaf theater. We taught dance to blind people. I had a project with Alvin Ailey. It was an amazing job. And because I spoke Spanish and I spoke French, Jean Kennedy Smith, who is the sister of John Kennedy, was the head of it. She said, we're going to uh, do an international program and I want you to run it. And during that period of eight years or so that I was working for the Kennedy Center, we set up the Very Special Arts International Program. We were working with about 80 countries. So it was a really incredible mix of disabled people, various cultures, and educators and artists. Must have been totally fascinating. So going on to the next chapter, how did you meet your husband, Jim? So I was at a uh, Christmas party in Georgetown one year, uh, 35 years ago now, and he had been traveling all around the world himself with his thumb. He was, you know, he had hitched around, hitchhiked around the world for about four or five years. I had been traveling, but in a very different way, but through very special arts. So we connected on that level. We got married in 1986. I was still really traveling a ton for the Kennedy Center. And he was a consultant. He was an analyst at U.S. Information Agency, USIA. So how did the conversation go when Jim was considering joining the Foreign Service, which was in 1988? I was working in Beijing. I had taken a team of artists to do a very special arts festival there. I get a call from my husband who said, oh, well, I just got into the Foreign Service. And I said, you didn't even tell me you were applying to the Foreign Service. The first year we were married, he would go off to the hardware store, I thought, but he was taking the foreign service exam and then he passed that and he took the oral exams and passed those and was offered a position right when I was in China. I said, you know, I want to be able to work. I think maybe I could work in Beijing. And so they assigned us to Beijing. You got your first choice and a place that you are familiar with. But with all overseas tours, the Foreign Service officer, him or herself, has their embassy job ready made, but the spouse has to navigate and adjust to the new environment on their own. Tell us about some of the main hurdles that you encountered living in Beijing and how you managed to surmount them. Well, this was the old China. It was like going back 100 years in time. I was utterly shocked by the whole experience when I first got there. Jim goes off to the American embassy, and there I am in China. <laughs> I don't speak the language. I don't know anything about the culture. I had given up my job. 
my family, my friends, everything was packed in boxes. I was pretty overwhelmed by the beginning. First day, I, I thought, well, I know people here. I am going to go out and try to beat them. And I rented a bicycle, if you can believe it, in Beijing. And I drove across Beijing on this bike where hundreds of bikes are all over the place. In those days, no cars, just bikes. And I get to the Chinese Disabled People's Federation, which was where I had done the Very Special Arts Festival. I said, hi, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm living here and I'd love to work here. Can you hire me? And they were like, no, I don't think we can hire the wife of a diplomat. That would be working for a communist institution would be very difficult. So I was very demoralized in the beginning. They then came up with another idea, which was that they would take me to all the institutions in Beijing where disabled children and people were living, and I could do arts programming with the staff and with the people. So I was a volunteer, but it was a really big opportunity. The Chinese Disabled People's Federation was run by Deng Pufang, who's the son of Deng Xiaoping. And the reason he ran that organization is that he was thrown out of a window during the Cultural Revolution and broke his back. And so he was paralyzed from the waist down. But having a name like that at the head of the um, agency was really a way to change people's attitude in China about disabled people. It was a struggle in the beginning. I used to go every morning and do Tai Chi in the park just to feel better. I was doing Tai Chi in one corner of the park and all the people over there were all doing ballroom dancing. I told my Chinese teacher, my Tai Chi teacher, don't they do Tai Chi anymore in China? He said, well, they're very interested in opening up to the Western ways. So I said, I'm a dancer. Well, I could probably show them a few things about Western dance. Before you know it, I had 200 ballroom dancing students who all wanted to learn how to tango and cha-cha and rock and roll. It was a riot. I think you're a really good example of how volunteer work can be interesting and a learning experience and gratifying, that it doesn't have to be a job with a job description with pay. You also were volunteering at Chinese orphanages. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that was an eye-opening experience. They took me to all these different institutions, and finally one day they took me to a Qinghe orphanage, there were about 595 kids there. Most of them were girls. They were supposed to be disabled. Their disability was that they were girls, but they had no real major disabilities. And they were all just in their beds. Nothing was happening there. I thought, this is unbelievable. So I said to them, look, I, I will work with your staff if we can get all the kids out of their beds and they'll work with us. And then I realized this is overwhelming. How am I gonna do this? There's so many kids. So I decided to start a volunteer organization. I called it Beijing International Volunteers. And I advertised among the foreign community, saying, do you want to get to know any Chinese people? I have a way. Um, and if you take this training with me, you can uh, work in these institutions with me. Well, I mean, I had about 15 people. I mean, I did a training course. And after a while, I had you know them going in doing arts, dance and music and painting, sports in the, in the orphanage and really turned around things. That sounds like a win-win definitely for the children, but also for the volunteers who were trying to figure out how can I get involved in this society that I'm, I'm not really a part of. And so your training and, and your entree really gave them a role and I'm sure that they could see the progress that these kids were making through their efforts. I think it was great for all of them. During that period, 
said that you were there from 1988 to 1991, and especially your first year. China was really in a pivotal social and political transition period, and you were down in Tiananmen Square with the protesters before the massacre on June 3rd and 4th, 1989. So tell us about what you saw and what your experience was. Well, it was a remarkable time to live in China. It was called the Beijing Spring. We were on the university campus, actually, the night that students started rallying. Every single weekend would go out and meet the people that were like in rallies or on the street corners talking about democracy. Um, we would listen. It was good practice for our Chinese, but we would also were amazed at this historical happening where and it was a country that was completely suppressed by the Communist Party and very, very, very uh, sullen in many ways. And you could just see people opening up, starting to talk about these ideas and then the possibility that they might have some freedom. And students would ask us questions about what was it like in America during the Vietnam War era. How did you organize? How did you demonstrate? They were really kind to us. They called us Lao Wai, honorable foreigners. So we did that for months. And on the evening of June 3rd, there were over a million people in the square. Um, most of the students were fasting. They were on a hunger strike. So that night, the 3rd, I was in the square with Jim and his mother, who happened to be visiting from Alabama. And we were talking to all the students, and we left. We, I took his mother back to our apartment. And while we were going back, I noticed there was like rumbling uh, in the distance. The people were all like, go back, go back, it's not safe. So... That was the night that the tanks were sent in and they attacked the, uh, you know, people throughout Beijing around the square. And uh, I didn't see Jim for the whole night. He was in the square that night. He was one of the few American embassy witnesses to the whole massacre. He had seen people shot down. He had seen uh, citizens run in front of the tanks and try to stop the tanks and, and pull people out of the tanks and rip them apart. It was an amazing time to be living in China. It's not something you'd wish upon yourself, but it was an amazing, uh, pivotal moment and a very, very impressive moment. And how traumatic for everybody. So Jim had to stay and do his job at the embassy, but family members were evacuated? June 8th, we were in the embassy with Ambassador Lilly having a meeting, and he said, there's a voluntary evacuation. If you want to leave, you should leave. While we were in that meeting, the PLA started shooting the embassy, and they were shooting the residences where the expatriates, foreigners, all lived in certain parts of the city. So he said, this has changed. This is a mandatory evacuation. You have to go right now. The Marines are going to pick you up at your place and take you out to a hotel by the airport. The ambassador gave me the phone and said, get on the phone and tell people what to do that the Marines are going to pick them up. I was talking to the security officer's house when their apartment was shot. They were underneath their bed telling me, we can't go out, we're afraid to go out. And I said, run out, run to the door, go out to the Marine van and get in it. So it was really unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable time. We did get to the airport. Jim snuck out there in the middle of the night and said goodbye to me. Pan Am sent a plane for us all. It was like this huge celebration that we had actually survived all of this. CBS News grabbed me, actually, and asked me to go on the air and explain what we had experienced in the square. Then you came back to the safety of Washington, D.C. for three months. Who did you live with? I lived with my sister, Christine, and her husband, Tony Fauci. They live in D.C., and uh, almost every time I went home, I stayed with them. I stayed for a couple months 
and uh, they took good care of me. I ended up speaking all over the place about what uh, was going on in China because Americans were really, really interested in and nervous about the whole topic. So after the three months, then you returned to China. So how did you see the situation changing when you went back there? And what kinds of activities did you do? It was a completely different world when I went back. No relations were happening between the United States and China at the time. It was completely cut off. So I got a letter from someone in the United States who asked me whether I would organize a conference, a U.S.-China women's conference dialogue and there had been no communication between china and uh the united states at the time but i went to the all china women's federation to propose this idea and they agreed because they were going to do the u.n conference in 1995 so i coordinated this conference with them i pretty much got all the americans and they recruited chinese women from all over the country from various parts of the country to come and it was a pretty pivotal moment for all of us to be able to talk to each other. It was a little hard, as you can imagine. The Chinese women were completely censored. So they would say things like, we have a harmonious relationship and our families are perfect and our lives are perfect. Then the Americans would get up and talk about how we had date rape, no equal rights, no money for our jobs. And so after three years in Beijing, three very eventful years, you lived in the D.C. area from 1991 to 93, and your son and your daughter were both born there. Then Jim got another posting to the consulate in Madras, India, and so you Went there in 1993, your daughter was one month old. Moving is difficult anyway, moving to a new culture and having a baby, but you did all of that. So how was your family's adjustment there? How did your own initial difficulties lead you to co-found Global Adjustments to help other expatriates with cultural and logistical challenges of moving to Madras? You know, most Americans don't know anything about India. I was just like them. I was worried about the poverty and the dirt. And I had a one-month-old baby and a two-year-old son, so I was nervous about all of it. So I had a really tough adjustment. And after a while, I'm an actor, so I got involved in the theater. Someone asked me to be in a show, and I did a show, and then I started meeting everybody. I met all these Indian people. So then I started really being immersed in the culture, and I actually grew to love the culture. American businesses who were starting to think they'd like to work in India. It was right when India was opening up to the West. I realized they didn't have any clue to hold their hands. They'd have the same adjustment problem I had and nobody to help them. So I talked to my Indian friend, uh, Ranjini, and said, you know, what do you think about starting a relocation company to help people adjust to life in India? We hung out our shingle and started with brochures and went recruiting. Our first client was Ford. And that was really lucky. I mean, Ford Motor Company was considering moving to Madras. So we took them all around, held their hand, showed them everything and said, you know, this is how you live here. We can help you. We'll help you get settled. He said to me, do you like living in India? And at that point, I could actually honestly say I do. And he said, okay we're going to send 50 families and you are going to help us settle them all in. So that was our first huge break. And then we, the company still exists now, all these years later, we've had our anniversary, 25th anniversary recently, and we've had thousands of clients. Many, many corporations have come to India. That must have been tremendously helpful to those people coming in who didn't know the culture and didn't know where to go, what to do, how to get things. I should say that we also do cross-cultural training 
because cultures are so distinctly different. And without understanding a culture, you're not going to love it. You're not going to learn how to be in it. Um, and we had many, many different courses that we offered. And I think that really helped people a lot to understand and experience the country in a different way. So all these foreigners were moving in. They have no school to go to because the Indian schools were full as well as they were very different from our Western schools. I started a school with my friend, uh, which became the American International School, now American International School of Chennai. We started with 18 kids. Two of them were my little kids. And by the end, now they have over a thousand kids and IB program and swimming pool and $10 million campus. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. That's such a good example of how a foreign service spouse can be creative and enterprising and look at the place where they're living and see the need and say, what can I do to address this need? Who do I need to help me and how can I do it? So between Global Adjustments, uh, your company, and also the school, you did it in Madras. What I realized even in China, way back, China and India and all of my cultures, was that the best way to figure this out was to look where there was a hole in the country, a hole in the society, something that needed to be done. And then examining my own skills and think, well, I could do that. Where I was teaching dance in China or working with disabled people in China, because I knew that, they didn't know that, I could, I could add that value. The same was true in India and in all the countries I've lived in, actually. Yeah, that's exactly it. So in 1996, you did a direct transfer from Madras to Nairobi, Kenya, a completely different culture on a completely different continent. Your son was six, your daughter was three. So what was the situation like back then in Nairobi? How did you adjust to the new culture and environment in Africa? Well, it was extremely different from India. Kenya is a completely different culture, different world. It had a lot of crime. So, you know, very first day we go to the security office in the embassy and they give us all these warnings about uh, carjacking and robbery and all those things that make you worry. But again, I, I found that the best way to get involved in any place is to get involved in the culture. So because I'm an actor, I, I went down to the local theater and apply to uh, say I'd like to be in a show and they put me actually in the lead in a, their show which was a Neil Simon play called Gingerbread Lady and I did many many plays in uh, Kenya I also was worried about the, you know, embassy spouses. So I organized something we called the Kenya Resource Network. We compiled all of our skills and tried to market our skills with the commercial section and with other corporations in the city. And I got an award from the CLO uh, that year for the, the just creating that resource network as a model that maybe the rest of the uh, Foreign Service could use to actually work with Foreign Service spouses. That is an issue that everybody has in the Foreign Service, all the spouses, and not only once, but every time you move to a new place. How can I use my skills to get a job or to contribute to the community. And that's kind of like the skills bank through the family liaison office. So the next chapter in Nairobi, we've all heard about the deadly Al-Qaeda bombing of Embassy Nairobi on August the 7th, 1998. Where were you and your family and what happened? I uh, took my children to the doctor's office for their school physical that day. I went in. My husband was in the ambassador's office having a meeting, and we had planned to meet for lunch. So we were going to meet on the first floor. And there was an explosion, and then within a minute, the whole building blew up, and we were thrown on the floor. I realized pretty quickly 
that it was a bombing. It was completely dark. There was cement hanging all over and wires hanging down. There was glass all over the floor. So I grabbed my son and daughter and we crawled out of there. So we just went down this dark, dark hallway and we heard people yelling, help, help, how do we get out of here? We did find our way to the very end of the hall. There was a big light, like a hole in the wall. I pushed the kids through that hole and we ran up the ramp out of the embassy to see that there was a huge fire right where our car had been parked. Our car was parked next to the truck that had the bomb in it. So my husband was on the fourth floor, so he thought we were on the first floor, and he tore down the steps, uh, the fire steps, you know. And as he went down from floor to floor, the third floor, uh, many people were killed. The second floor, everybody was killed. The first floor, everyone was dead. And he ran around the perimeter of the embassy, right when my kids ran around the other side of the perimeter of the embassy, through the fire and everything. We were all covered in black soot. And my daughter screamed, Daddy, Daddy. And we all got together and we ran away from the embassy. It was a unbelievable experience. I still, you know, have trouble talking about it, actually. Yeah. What a horrible experience for your family and for the Americans in the embassy, the survivors and those who were injured, and, and especially for the Kenyans, so many of whom were killed that day. So how did you personally deal with that traumatic experience in which you and your kids barely escaped with your life? We had the option of evacuating. Uh, we all stayed, and I think it is really important when you're in some kind of a trauma like that to stay in the location where people know what happened to you. Because we had a real uh, community there, and there was a very strong community at the school where my kids went to school, and they all supported us. I was the head of the American Women's Association at the time, and I realized that while the embassy was extremely busy dealing with the Americans who were hurt and who were killed, there were 250 Kenyans who died and thousands of people who were hurt. So we set up a relief fund, a bomb relief fund. And I went on television, I, I went on television in the United States and on the radio and sent letters to the New York Times and Wall Street Journals and everywhere asking for money to support uh, the rehabilitation of Kenyan people. We got, well, we got quite a lot of money and we started to really respond to some of the needs that we saw in the Kenyan population. There were 15 children that were on a bus in front of the embassy when it blew up. They were all blinded. And so I got uh, support from the Boston Eye and Ear Hospital to do pro bono uh, surgery on all these children and try to get the glass out of their eyes. And then we got free airline tickets from the airlines to get them there. And we sent all these kids for um, rehabilitation, many of whom got some of their sight back. Someone said, could you come to this hospital? There's a woman who was stuck under a wall and she had she was paralyzed from the waist down. She had given up pretty much. And I said, you know, we can help you. I think that we have some way to help you. We're going to send you for rehabilitation. And we got the money enough together to send her to South Africa. And she got rehabilitated. You know, she got a wheelchair and learned how to live uh, in her wheelchair. And that was an amazing experience for me because when she came back, she was a changed person, and she was very, very upbeat. And I, I taught her how to dance, because, you know, I knew about wheelchair dancing, and we went out to a disco together and danced. So it was a really incredible experience. <laughs> 
those human stories are, are the most important. And it sounds like your way of dealing with your personal trauma was to be proactive and help other people who had been through the bombing who needed help. So then in 1999 to 2004, you were back in Washington, D.C., where your husband was at the State Department. And then after those five years, you were faced with the decision of, do we get another overseas post or does my husband retire? How did that conversation go about, should we should we do this again or should we just stay here? Well, our kids were preteens at that time and they were Americanized. They'd been there for five years. They were in all the soccer teams, Girl Scouts and all. But the kids, the kids, their decision was much more about, they wanted to be international people. They loved their life in Kenya. They loved their life in India. They wanted to keep an international uh, focus. And so they were the ones, they said, we're gonna go, let's go. We, we went to Taiwan. Taiwan actually ended up being such a fantastic place for them at, at that time, because it's very welcoming. They love Americans. It's a safe and uh, courteous place, great for raising teenagers. They had a great experience and are both very, very international kids now as a consequence of that, that we stayed for four years there so they could do their high school. Or my son did his high school and my daughter did her junior high school. And so what did you do while you were living in Taiwan? I had to figure again, okay, what do I do here? And it seemed to me that the school was the sort of center of all activity. So I actually ran. It was a political appointee for the board, the school board. And I got elected to the school board. So it was a major part of the development of the school. I also worked at the National Palace Museum, which is a place where all the Chinese antiques from the emperors of China are still displayed and stored. 600,000 of them. I, I deeply immersed in, in the Chinese culture by studying to be a docent and was a docent at the museum. And I also wrote for a magazine. I wrote for a cultural magazine. We had a wonderful experience there. Yeah, so you have a way in every post of making it work for you and contributing to others and also really being a, an open-minded learner about what is that culture and what can I do here? So after four years in Taiwan, you returned to Washington and then you also decided that you would write a memoir called The Unofficial Diplomat, which is a perfect title. We all know that spouses serve alongside their foreign service officer partners, but they're rarely paid and often not fully recognized for their services. So what were your main messages from that book? I, I was experiencing being in the United States that people were not that aware of other cultures. And the main message was that, that we need to open up to learn as much as we can, to reach out as much as we can to people of various backgrounds. It was like a whole new mission for me that that um, our world is global. And the book talks about how um, if you go live overseas, you are uh, ambassador of sorts for the United States, for the culture. Sometimes you're the only person they've ever met who's an American. Or but conversely, you're learning about that culture and you're bringing it back to to share with people in America. So you become a real agent for understanding. And one other point I want to make is that I did, in writing the book, realize that it really, really matters those little seeds you drop, you know, those little things that you do, you never know. For example, like the school in India, I mean, how was I to know that it was going to become a major school? Or my business has become such a big place for people to get uh, help and it's, it's morphed in so many ways. You don't know, but those seeds are worth dropping and getting involved 
in meeting the people and learning the language and understanding the culture and sharing our culture in a personal human way is so valuable. That's really the message of the book, which is still available on Amazon. What you're saying is that in in each foreign culture, you're taking risks. You're putting yourself out there and you're meeting new people and you're trying new things. They could succeed or they could fail, but you still try it. And often the payoffs are are phenomenal, um, not only for your own gratification, but for everybody that you're helping in those cultures. And speaking of of helping, you and your colleagues started a program called I Live to Lead in 2010, for which you won the prestigious Encore Award in 2014. And then to cap it off, in 2019, you wrote a book called I Can, colon, A Young Woman's Guide to Taking the Lead, which was fostering leadership in young women all around the world. I noticed that girls tend to really get lost in their teenage years in terms of their power. I realized from having lived overseas that if you influence women, if you empower women, it can change not only them, but their family, their whole society, their their community. So I felt like working with women was really the way to go to make a difference. And so we we set up I Live to Lead and we developed a curriculum uh, that teach, teaches leadership skills to women. It's a week-long program that we used to take around the world. And we worked with thousands of girls, and they were all adolescents between the ages of 15 and 22. Uh, At a time where they really are questioning who they are, what they want to do, how they're going to live their lives. In many of the cultures, they think they don't have the option of not getting married and not having kids, but you know, you can influence them to think, you know, you could be the leader of that community group, or you could be the head of that school, or you could be the CEO of that company, or you could run for president of your country, right? So kids would come to us somewhat hesitant and shy after a week of just this encouragement and teaching them public speaking and project planning and financial planning and all these things we did, they were raring to go. And so many of our girls, I mean, really so many of our girls, I'm still in touch with lots of them, are now in their 20s. They're doing amazing things. So it's really been one of the more rewarding things that I've done. And the book is really, uh, basically it's the curriculum and it's offered to girls all over the world who have an idea, who want to do something and don't know how to do it. And it sort of takes you step by step about how you actually take a vision, an idea, develop the project and actually actualize it. But also that they could see how much they had in common, even though they were from different places. So back to your unofficial diplomat, your personal memoir, you write about what is common to many foreign service partners. As the spouse of a diplomat, I have been constantly challenged to define what I will do in each post and discover how to find purpose and happiness in strange new cultures. It is a lonely process calling upon your inner resources, but Joanne, you have managed it with bells on. What, what a great example you've been. So do you have any final thoughts or lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service or are new to the Foreign Service? And what would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a family? Well, yes, I think anybody who's considering going into the Foreign Service and they have a partner has to think about whether they really want to learn about other cultures, um, whether they really want to immerse themselves in the newness of a place. There are hardships. There's no question about it. Look at all the things that happened to me. And there are remarkable rewards. But it takes 
that sort of personal digging down inside you to get the resource, the courage, you might call it, or the competence or the drive to like come out and, you know, go ahead and meet the people, uh, learn the language, understand the culture. Because if you do that, then it's just so rich. It really can be life-changing. If you, if you were interviewing my children here, they would be saying, yes, 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 do it, do it, do it. They loved it. They want to repeat the lifestyle because it's so broadening. And the world is global, and you need to really, everybody needs to open it up. It doesn't, not only foreign service people, but I mean, my message of foreign service, potential foreign service officers, this is an incredible career. It's an incredible opportunity, and you need to embrace it and realize that what it is is helping you be global, helping you be an ambassador for the United States in a way that's so, so critical in this time right now where we need that. And, you know, a way for you to understand the world. So it's, it's really, I think it's worth it, but you have to embrace it. Well, you have certainly embraced it, Joanne, and you've successfully reinvented yourself with each foreign posting and lived such a creative, proactive, and meaningful life with lasting memories and sustainable contributions to communities abroad, as well as in the U.S., using your leadership and organizational skills, as well as your artistic talents. So on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences. Thank you, Bonnie. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.